We implemented many ITIL processes. The world's most practiced method for project management. ITIL has been um, a catalyst in my career. Hundreds of thousands of people with a Prince 2 qualification. I've seen ITIL help organizations be more successful. The Axelos Podcast, bringing best practice directly to you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this uh, episode of the Axelos Global Best Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Akshay Alman, and we've got an amazing panel for you today, probably the, the best panel we've ever put together. And uh, we're going to be talking about um, what for some people might be a very uh, sensitive uh, and emotive subject, and that is mental well-being. Uh, it's, it's, as I said, it's, it's a sensitive matter, and we're going to try to treat this with the utmost of respect and gravitas that it deserves. Uh, but some folks, uh, such as myself, use humor as a defense mechanism. So if I do crack an ill-advised joke, please do not be offended by it. It's just my way of coping with the seriousness of the conversation. But joining me today in uh, no uh, specific order is uh, James Finister. Uh, James is uh, uh, someone who should be quite well known to the ITSM crowd, uh, not only in the UK, but around the world. He's, uh, he's a uh, principal, I think, is the actual title. Uh, partner these days. Partner, sorry. sorry. He is a partner at uh, TCS, uh, part of the Enterprise Agility Group. Um, and he, as I said, speaks uh, on many topics, including mental well-being as well as enterprise agility. And fun fact, he was the uh, person who authored quite a few pieces on psychological safety in the Idle for High Velocity IT book. Uh, next, I'll go to uh, Laura Rigdon. Uh, Laura was recently introduced to me by our third panelist, whom I'll come to in a moment. Um, Laura is the um, founder, owner of a company called It's a Playground that trains and advises uh, professionals and organizations on the importance of uh, mental well-being. And uh, in the full interest of disclosure, Laura is actually currently in the middle of teaching me about <laughs> uh, in, in my mental health first aid, of course. So uh, welcome, Laura. Yeah. And last but not least is my good friend from way back in the day, uh, John Kendrick. Um, John is currently a, you, you recently got promoted, John, so I'm not, I forget what your new title is, but you used to be senior consultant. Just a pre, yeah, just a principal now. Oh, okay. You're the principal in, in my list. <laughs> <laughs> so John is a principal at the DMW Group, um, which is a boutique consulting company that advises organizations on topics such as uh, IT service management, agile ways of working, digital transformation, and so on. Uh, and John was someone who took that mental health first aid course with Laura last year, and it was through talking to him that I became interested in the course and therefore met Laura. So, James, John, Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Akshay. Very happy to be here. So I think w one of the first things that I'd like to explore, and, and I think some of you corrected my language uh, some time ago, is... Oh, sorry, before I get to that, one, one last introduction that I that I neglected, shamefully neglected, is that of Harry Freeman. Harry is our producer. Uh, he's the one who's looking at these uh, weird computer screens uh, that uh, and, and the audio levels on those computer screens. But Harry is also someone who's really interested in this topic of, of mental well-being, of mental health. And um, 
Harry, is there anything you'd like to add before we get stuck into the... Hello. No, I'm just, <laughs> just glad to be introduced. <laughs> Harry's, uh, Harry's, Harry's a, a mainstay. He's always been in the background of every single podcast we've produced. And uh, as I said, shamefully, uh, sometimes I don't acknowledge his presence. So, Harry, I do apologize. <laughs> it's not a problem. Um, all right. So uh, I think it was um, perhaps Laura or John who, who corrected uh, some language I'd used um, uh, earlier. I had inadvertently referred to mental health rather than mental well-being. So I think that might make a really good starting point for our discussion. Is there a difference? And if so, what is the difference? And what should we be talking about as professionals with our colleagues, with our families and so on? Should we be talking about mental health or should we be talking about mental well-being? Um, Laura, you're the you're the uh, expert. Uh, you're... you're background and profession is, is related to these topics. So maybe we can come to you with that first question. Yeah, definitely. Um, my point of view and the point of view that I'm happy to be able to share on this podcast is that we should be talking about both. Um, mental health is, we, we've all got mental health. Mental health does not mean mental illness. So we can talk about mental health just like we can talk about mental well-being. On both of those, though, we should never be giving, we're talking about giving advice. So we can talk about mental health. We all have different varying levels of mental health. Our levels of mental health and mental well-being vary throughout the day. Um, and as long as we're aware that we all have our own differences um, and that we shouldn't be giving advice to others when we're not professional therapists, um, then, yeah, we should be talking about it all the time. I think that physical health, people are happy to talk about, and mental health is just a different aspect of, of our overall health. Um, I could so, so what's on the on difference that. between mental health and mental well-being? That is an extremely good question, and the answer is quite vague. So, um, and to let you know how that is, how it can be vague is that World Health Organization, for example, defines um, mental health as a state of well-being in which every individual realizes their own potential, et cetera, et cetera, um, goes into how it's how we deal with life. It's basically how we think, how we feel. Um, and the definition, the World Health Organization definition of health itself says health is not just physical well-being, but also mental and social well-being. So although they are different words, they are often interchanged. And it's only when we think about mental ill health that we start to think, oh, oh gosh, this is kind of the sensitive stuff. But also someone can have poor mental health and not have a diagnosis or, or a yeah, diagnosis of a mental ill health condition. So a little bit vague, but hopefully that's helped a little bit. Uh, Sorry, go ahead, James. No, I was just going to say, I think one thing we do need to be aware of is that when we're talking a lot about wellness, um, yeah. and, and a lot of the things the industry talks about, which are very good things, things like meditation and so on, which can be useful across the spectrum, what we do need to be aware of that sometimes people do need to go and see a doctor. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's absolutely no stigma about that. But what we'll, I think we're going to primarily talk about is much more the mental well-being side of it, which is, I, I like to think it's very much more, t tends to be situational in, in terms of 
if you, if you alter the situation, you won't alter your mental perspective on it. I, I think when it, when it's a true mental health issue, when clinical intervention is needed, you know, it, it's about it's about well, as, as as was said by a very good doctor to a very good friend of mine. Uh, in those cases, you it, it's just like having a broken leg. Yeah. And you need the same sort of treatment you need for broken leg. So I, I think most of the time there's there's lots in common between the two different domains. Yeah. From what you said about mental health, it sounds like the health is the kind of idealistic goal of, of where you would want to get to. But yet it's somewhat unrealistic in uh, how attainable it actually is. Yeah, and that's that particular definition. Sorry to jump in there. Um, that particular definition from the World Health Organization, and even definitions from um, Mind Charity, for example. I love their definition, um, but it's all about you know mental health and well-being is when you care for yourself, look after yourself, um, all that sort of thing. Um, but often it is idealistic, and I mean we could all start off um, our days with really positive mental health. And then something might happen and we, we can become, um, you know, have less, less positive well-being and, and mental health. Um, and it's not, we shouldn't ever have judgment because we can all move around. Mental health is on a continuum. We're all, we all have mental health, like I said. We definitely don't all have mental illnesses, but we all could develop a mental illness. Um, so, therefore, there shouldn't be any discrimination or stigma associated with mental health or mental illness um, but we also should have if we are unwell um, we should have hope that we can all recover as well because we can all move around that kind of continuum. I think the way I explain the difference to myself I think is by actually substituting the word physical into mm -hmm. those two phrases so there's a difference between physical health and physical well-being. So when I think physical health, I, you know, James, you use the example of um, having a broken arm or a broken leg and I need um, professional intervention or I need an intervention of some sort to uh, to recover. Whereas physical well-being, I think of, you know, I should be stand, sitting, sitting at my desk for eight hours straight. I should get up, I should stretch once in a while, I should eat right. Uh, so I think that's the way I sort of explain the mental health versus mental well-being um difference uh, to myself uh, but but one of the interesting things uh, that we were talking about earlier in the uh, before we started recording is uh, and Laura you touched upon it it's it's a stigma uh, I think uh, you as you said it, it doesn't manifest the same way for, for different people but uh, what are the sort of factors that we see uh, affecting people's mental well-being uh today uh, John, you've been you've been suspiciously quiet this whole time. So you know what? I'm going to drag you into this conversation, my friend. I was listening. So. I was listening. I'm very much listening to the difference between mental health and well-being. Um, to listen to the definitions there. Um, do, do you have something to add to that? Yeah, uh, I, um, I, I. So for me, I think. For me, I suppose mental health is a particular state that we're in. Well-being is the act. For me, it's kind of classifies the activities that I want to do to ensure I have the kind of the mental health that's in good shape. That, that's um, yeah, so I suppose that's my slant on it. Um, and it does drift a little bit into some of the things that I just mentioned around, you know, meditation and, and yoga and, and all these lots of very good things that are very good for our mindfulness and so forth about help, helping people recenter themselves, which I think can can help a lot. But that 
you know that's on a, you know, exactly as was just mentioned you know very much on the continuum the, the, there's sort of there's certain things that we can influence in our day-to-day lives and especially during the challenges that we're facing with as we currently you know look at looking at lockdown there's all sorts of things that we should be doing to ensure that we have good physical health and actually that can influence your mental health as well so it, there is very much a circular reference here so yeah i was just just listening and making notes to be honest <laughs> <laughs> um so you, you were just talking about lockdown and, and the impact mm. of, of, of mental health but um you know what, what one of the factors that i find interesting when i speak to people um or i know this is probably going to sound weird but when i observe people um is how their for example their social background their upbringing their, the, the culture in which they were brought up as well can sometimes affect uh, their state of mental well-being um, and and what they're going through. Uh, you know, in some countries. Uh, you know, I was, I was talking to to uh, a woman in India earlier today, and she was talking about how, even though lockdowns happened and people are working from home, the expectations on women in India have not changed in terms of childcare, in terms of home uh, housekeeping. Uh, etc and that only adds to the mental burdens that people are going through so is is mental well-being mental health uh is it nature or is it nurture i suppose is, is one way to to frame that question it's a huge question <laughs> i'm looking for an exact answer here guys whenever i hear the phrase nature versus nurture my immediate intent is to just jump towards that smarter people than i have been discussing this very concept for many many years but i'd be intrigued to know the answer well i, I think the interesting thing as well actually is not just nurture but ongoing nurture and culture and support environment around you and i, and I think yeah. that's something for people who've suffered most for people who've lacked that support structure around them and of course in lockdown is a very difficult time to go out and find a support structure unless you already at least have some connections um i mean i think in our world we've been very lucky um but one or two super connectors you know have done a, did a good job particularly in the early days of lockdown of arranging zoom meetings and so on um but, but we have to recognize not everybody has that and also some people find that perhaps intimidating in in some ways if if you're somebody who likes to be part of a crowd but not the center of attention then the zoom meetings yeah can, can be can be a challenging environment for you yeah. I, I know in some parts of the world you know that um the Mental well-being or, or mental state of the parents is sometimes seen as the reason why the, the children uh, are, you know, um, susceptible to something else. There are many different, I think, societal norms which uh, which come to mind. And, and Laura, this was something I think we were talking about in in the class um, earlier. Um, from, from your perspective, uh, is there uh, something that you would particularly call out as being uh, a factor in more more of the cases that you've seen or people that you've talked to is it possible to pinpoint something as being a, a dominant factor or not really well 
can I go back? I wouldn't say that there's one dominant factor. There are so many different risk factors, as we call them. And when we say risk factors, it's just looking at population statistics, right? So it is not saying that someone who has had um, a bad upbringing or has um, unstable housing or has family member that has experienced, you know, a serious um, a mental illness, that does not mean that someone is definitely going to become unwell, but they are risk factors that we should consider. And just like risk factors, we have protective factors. And some of these things we can control, some we cannot. Um, so it's about kind of doing as much as we possibly can to look after ourselves. Going back to really briefly, because I, I can't not say something on the nature versus nurture. <laughs> um, <laughs> I automatically go to a very simple answer of saying it is both. Um, we can both be influenced by by our genetics, by what we're we're made up of, um, but we can also just as just be influenced by our environmental factors, culture, stigma, um, whether we drink alcohol, things like that. There are so many things that can influence um, our health, um, and I say health because you might. Whenever I say health, I'm talking about our whole health, right? So mental, physical, and social. Um, and there's so many things that can influence our, our health. And we should focus on doing whatever we can in terms of getting as many of those protective factors like connection and the connection the way we want it um, in our lives. But also have to consider that no matter how many protective factors we have, we may still become unwell. And I think it's, it's good to kind of connect that to physical health in that someone might be the fittest, healthiest person that you know and still unfortunately become unwell with cancer or another chronic kind of physical illness. Um, so, yes, we've got a lot of control over looking after ourselves. We've even got control over, um, you know, the neuroplasticity of our brain um, by the way we think, which is amazing and empowering, but also should not take away the, the fact that we still might become unwell. Um, and in those cases, we should be able to ask for help and get whatever whatever help we need. So I, I guess that leads to another interesting question. Um, and, and John, I'd be interested to, to hear your thoughts on this, which is, is it possible to self-diagnose when uh, a symptom manifest. Is it possible to look at ourselves and say, you know, I think something's off here? Give me the uh, easy questions, don't you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's an interesting thing, and I, I think just coming back to what you, we were just saying about about lockdown, um, Laura just I'll, I'll come to answer it. Laura just mentioned about the physical, the mental, and the social well-being, and I think lockdown has put a handbrake on a couple of those. I think the physical and the social well-being for quite a lot of people has been something that's been reduced substantially. And I think, you know, as they are a platter that needs to be, you know, measured, I think, altogether, I think you can inevitably see something that would happen on the mental side. That's my belief. Right? That's, that's where I am. So, you know, uh, that, 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 that's kind of where I am with, with the balance that we all need to break between those three. I'll just share a personal uh, opinion on that. Looking at my elderly relatives, my parents, my in-laws, other elderly relatives who are in India, you know, being at the age group that they are and being the higher risk factor that they are, they've been asked to keep uh, outings to an absolute minimum, right, uh, as, uh, except for the most essential of, of journeys. And 
in India, it's the culture is a very social culture. It's it's one in which they would go around to their, uh, you know, visit their other relatives, visit their friends almost on a daily basis. And for the last six months, they've um, they've not had that opportunity to do so. Um, and in some ways, I do fear that we're just sitting on this this sort of uh, pressure, uh, this, this, this balloon that's about to pop uh, in in terms of mental health for for that age group, especially. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think so. Yes, I think there's definitely you know, cult, cultural references that you just made that are important. I don't think it's just limited to that age bracket and that particular culture. Um, the the idea that you know we we are all under you know, a, a very different new normal, as it you know, as it's been coined, is a challenge for all of us. I think it really is. And you know, some of the best indicators as to whether or not you're you're feeling okay is yourself. I think you know, it's, 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 if you can reflect um, and see how how you're feeling, if your mood is not quite where it should you know, would normally be, I think that's something to to reflect on. But a but a pretty reasonable, um, and this is a tough one because it relies on others, but a pretty reasonable measure. Is for others, you know. If others are brave enough to say, "Hey, how are you doing?" You know, you've you've not quite been your energetic self, or, um, "Hey, you know, you were quiet on the last call. You know, is everything okay?" If that crops up once or twice and you've been out for a run and you're tired, okay. But if there's a couple of times over, you know, maybe a couple of weeks that you're noticing that people are noticing that, or ask them, you know, say, "Hey, you know, how, how do you think I've been?" You know, it's worth doing. It's worth allowing that conversation to happen. And it's very much about people leaning into that conversation in a, in a controlled way, but it's also about being open to people chatting about it as well. Because we, you know, the, for me, I'm, you know, diversity, you know, diversity, inclusion, and well-being lead at, at DMW, and I've done my damnedest to try and break the stigma and allow people to have the open conversations about it. And I think that, that allowing people to chat and, and reach out for help in the same way that you sprain your ankle when you're out running and you want to get better technique when you're running. You know, we need to be sharing ideas in the way that we can keep our, our mental mental health uh, and well-being in a good spot as well. So for me, things to look out for, can you self-diagnose? No, I wouldn't dare suggest that you should do that. You should talk to people and then, you know, where where, where necessary, if it needs to be, you know, people to help out in, into more, in a more professional means, then it is not something to be afraid of. If you've got, if you're ill, go to the hospital and, and get it sorted. If you've got a broken arm, you do it. There's no reason to do, you know, not to do the same for, um, for mental health. Can can I challenge that slightly though, in, in this in the spirit of learning though, not re respectfully challenge that. Um, you know, just like in physical well-being, uh, with physical well-being, physical health, there are symptoms which, over time, we have trained ourselves to recognise. You know, if I'm if I if my temperature rises and I've got a runny nose, then I've probably got the flu as a very simplistic example. So could there not be, for example, physical health ma uh, manifestations often underlying uh, mental struggle? Like, you know, I've not been sleeping that well, or, um, you know, I've noticed my concentration has been diminished or that sort of thing that, where you're not reliant on somebody else holding up the mirror to you, but you can sort of say, I'm not on top of, my, on, I'm not top of the usual game. I think there's a fundamental difference, though, between self-awareness and self-diagnosis. Mm. I think everybody needs a certain degree of self-awareness where they can look at patterns of their behavior or thoughts and say, this is different to usual. And then taking the step to then explore that among other people that you know or your support system, rather than just jumping straight to a diagnosis yourself. You then keep that awareness and then 
test it among your peers. Yeah, I mean, one of my fears, though, is that when you're in this situation, um, you actually lose some of that ability to be detached. Um, and, and, and I think we are very dependent on our peers for some of this. And I think that's an interesting question for management as well. Uh, I, I can certainly think of some cases close to home where management has been blissfully unaware of the mental health of some of their team members, um, partly simply because of lack of physical contact with them, um, but also be, because you know, they, they only knew them professionally. And, and, I, and I think both of us you know, who, who are in nurturing cultures, um, you know, our colleagues aren't just our colleagues, are they? You know, they're, they're, they're friends, they notice things about us, uh, maybe we're getting to bed earlier, um, maybe we're no longer the life and soul of the party, um, or you know, maybe we're not so enthusiastic about work. I, and I think management have to be very open to listening to people get the full picture. I, th I think from a personal perspective, um, the big indicator for me that I've always got an issue is, is that things I used to once get enjoyment out of suddenly stop being enjoyable or stop even being, you know, I, I love cycling, but every so often there'll be that period when just going out and jumping on the bike is too much, too much effort. And I, and I think that's the sort of thing we can look out for. I think that, um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think in terms of the word diagnosis, we jump to, and I think that that's what's happening here we jump to think of a clinical diagnosis mm. but we can definitely pick up on signs and symptoms um, that may or may not make up a diagnostic criteria ourselves and that's self-awareness and one of the things that um that i do monthly is and i would have already spoken to to john and akshay about this in the the mental health first aid course but is having a look at things that stress me out um, and what I can do to kind of what can I do about them and what what can't I do anything about and push that aside potentially but also to have a think about what my personal in mental health first day we call it a stress signature and it's kind of when things are just getting too much and what that looks like will be slightly different for everyone um, I know for myself um, I used to think that it was the stage when I completely withdrew, completely withdrew from social situations and I just, I couldn't, couldn't really leave the bed. Um, however, after talking to, to well-chosen peers and friends, family, um, I found out that actually that's not the first, that's not the sign that I should be watching out for to think, hey, you really need to, to take a look and, and do something else to look after yourself here. It's the fact that I would start to become really negative. I'm normally quite a positive person um, and I'm a yes, a yes man, yes woman. Um, but when I start to overtly, my language changes to being quite negative, that's when I really need to catch myself as much as possible um, and take a step back and think, hang on, 
what do I need to do? Can I, is this something that I can do myself? Or do I need to get some additional support? Do I need to contact my therapist or GP, things like that? Um, but the way that looks, that's, that um, stress signature will be different. And um, like you're saying, um, you know, that, that lack of enjoyment. For some people, it might be them getting really agitated and start snapping at family members and things they don't usually do. Um, so I think that, yeah, as much as I don't recommend at all trying to give ourselves a clinical diagnosis, um, I think that understanding what signs we show that mean that we might need to give ourselves a little bit more care and attention um, is so, so unbelievably important. You know, uh, Harry meant, uh, used the word self-awareness uh, yeah. earlier, and I think that is, that is an incredibly important uh, asset that we should develop uh, yeah. for, us, uh, for ourselves. Uh, I think, you know, one thing I started doing after I, after I realized, you know, uh, Look, you know, in my in my 20s, I was cocky. I was brash. I was like, mental health, man, nah, that's not, you know, that's not something that's going to affect me. And maybe it did, but I was I was arrogant enough to to say it wasn't. Um, and, but as I got older, I noticed that there were some interesting patterns. And, you know, as my self-awareness increased, I could almost in a way confirm those patterns. Uh, so my wife tells me, for example, that, you know, I'm I'm usually very withdrawn, especially with the children. I'm even more, with, uh, I'm, I'm unusually withdrawn. Um, but then, you know, the other day I was looking at my um, my listening history, my, my song history in, in Apple Music. For those of you who, who know me, you know, you know how much I love music. And I could see periods where, you know, when I was trying to get something done, I needed that rush of energy, I was listening to metal. I was listening to Metallica, Rammstein, uh, Ghost, you name it. But then I would abruptly switch to, you know, something that was a lot more mellower, you know, 1950s rock and roll or, or something like that, because I just, uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit more happier than The Cure. But, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I could start to see that there you know, and correlating that with what was happening elsewhere around me, I started to become aware that, you know, there were some signs here that I can, I could track back to the time. But the, the, the pity is I can only make, have that analysis retrospectively. So the fact that I chose to listen to Roy Orbison today is not a, a sign that I'm in a low mood. It just happened to be that I wanted to listen to Roy Orbison today. It's only in retrospect that I could go back and say, well, actually, you know, maybe I was going through something um, at that time. And Yes, as, 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 as everyone said, it's it's very important to understand that everyone's going to manifest different symptoms at different times. And there is no one size fits all type of uh, approach here. One of the things that uh, uh, I think James mentioned earlier is is managers and how managers can deal with it and how managers can look out for things. but. James, I suppose that also introduces another question, which is our own personal biases and to an extent our own personal um, stigma towards the topic. Um, and I know this is something that uh, uh, John has talked about earlier as well. So if I could come to the, the two of you, don't care who wants to go first, but in terms of, of, of being a manager and looking out for your, your, your people and looking out for your team and, and so on, uh, how do you suggest that managers 
are a, can even broach the topic. I mean, there's so much sensitivity around this, uh, HR sensitivities even. But how 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 can you have such a conversation? Uh, maybe if 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 you're having to build it around a specific conversation at this stage, you're already too late. I mean, I, I think I've, I've mentioned before about culture and supporting culture. I, I think it is about managers simply building the type of culture, the type of peer support structure as well, because it's not all about the manager. Um, where, where people, I, I guess the number one word I would use is trust, because without trust, you're never going to have an honest conversation about mental health. Um, and I, I think that's trust two ways. I say it's, it's trust that somebody can be open about how they're feeling. It's that when they talk, you talk to them about it. You know, the worst thing that can happen when you're stressed is to feel that management on your back, mm. looking mm. at you and thinking, is this guy about to freak out on us? Is this guy about to become a problem? Why, why have this guy's performance figures started to fall? So, so I, I think it, it, it starts before the conversation. It's about that whole culture of trust that we build up. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I shared something on LinkedIn the other day, which came, I think, originally via Happy Signals, which was about how US SEALs select team members and that importance of trust over professional competency. I, I think that's such a powerful message. That's what we need to promote in teams. There's a little side here, which is, you know, we all know that one major cause of workplace stress is the, um, is, you know, that star performer who makes everybody else's life hell. Um, for which there are a number of words I can think of. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, and again, you know, so often we see management fail to have the open conversation that this person may be performing well individually, but their impact on the mental health of others is absolutely poisonous. And the number of organisations we've seen, you know, often going in as a consultant, um, where you can pinpoint this person very quickly, and yet management seem oblivious to the impact they're having on the mental health of others. That, that's interesting because my exposure to the concept of hero culture and and the uh, the um, the dangers of hero culture is more around the over-reliance on a particular individual with that particular skill set or with that particular knowledge without whom everything else would would collapse. But I, I suppose there's, there's this other side to it as well. Uh, John, has your experience um, as a consultant and prior to that, of course, as a, as a manager as well, uh, does it mirror what, what James has been talking about or have you had a different experience? Uh, I think the experiences are, are very similar, actually. I think the... The concept and the idea, and I, I strongly agree that it's not just the manager's responsibility, actually. Um, creating the atmosphere, I mean, Agile talks about psychological safety, but anyway, within a company, you are now, you need to allow people to say, look, hey, I could do with some help here. You need mm -hmm. to create the atmosphere uh, for, for people to do that. And um, that's, that is something that's quite, um, it's quite hard. It's quite hard to be frank. It's quite hard for a lot of men. To, to, you know, I'm not saying it's just women, but uh, you know, women have the problem. But there is this idea for you know that, that failure is something that you avoid. That saying that you can't do something is something that you don't do, and it shows weakness. And you know, I think culturally, that's in quite a lot of the um, 
lot of countries that, that, that you know seem to be you can't fail you can't have something that goes wrong and, and and if you can't achieve something because you just can't do it because you're physically and more importantly mentally exhausted you need to be able to put your hand up and go look hey i need some help here and, and creating the atmosphere to allow people to do that is essential so you know i'll, I'll, I'll quick plug i think you know the, the mental health first aid of course is a really really good thing we we put as soon as i heard on it i heard about it i went on it and i put 10 or 12 people through it within the company and we've now got not managers we've got a network of people within our company across the three locations that if anyone needs to have a chat it's done so in a trustworthy uh, and, and you know and, and a way that allows them just to have a chat about it and we're armed unfortunately i'm now lucky enough to be armed to cope with some of the, the challenges that, that people can crop up with um so you know I, I really do think there is an element of trust it's about an honest conversation it's not just the manager but it's about making so the culture within the company allows everyone to to, to lean into that and, and help each other out. Can, can, I, can I ask a question myself? Of yeah, um, who's done the first aid training, and Laurel, mm. obviously, is the person who delivers it. Do, do you think it helps not only, I, I, I guess it's the balance between how does it help you individually mm. coping with your own mental well being, mm. as opposed to the balance towards helping others? Can you do one without the other? I guess is part of my question. Exactly. <laughs> um, I you shouldn't. You probably can, as in you can probably support someone else else and not adequately support yourself. Um, but you shouldn't for so many different reasons. Um, we so throughout the course and. I, I obviously believe in the mental health first aid courses, um, but I mean, John discussed that, but then also went on to talk about, and, and, and his company, it is a whole cultural change, right? You need so many different things past that course. But what the course does is look at our own self-awareness, our own biases, frame of reference, how they can impact how we support others. We also put a lot of time into... Um, kind of the understanding of that when we are supporting someone else, it's not necessarily going to be exactly the way that, that we want to be supported. Um, and then it goes on a step further and basically just gives, like physical first aid really, it gives some basics in terms of things that we know um, that we should and shouldn't do in a, either a crisis situation or kind of an early intervention type situation uh, with referring someone to, to get appropriate help. Um, in particular different types of scenarios. Um, so it's not at all about teaching people how to diagnose others or anything like that. But I think, yes, we've talked already about the, we need to, talk, we need to look after ourselves first before anything else. There's the whole don't pour from an empty cup um, or the, um, you know, you put your oxygen mask on first before helping someone else in an aeroplane. And it is so important. And I think that a lot of people who come to do the course, and I know I, I did this for years. Um, I think people who come to do the course who are curious about this topic and supporting others, we tend to be the people who neglect our own well-being and mental health. Um, and think, gosh, we really got to sacrifice this. You know, it's, it's so much more important that I help others. But in reality, if we do not look after ourselves properly, we can't support others, whether it be, you know, we might not be able to support them as well as we could, or we might get to a stage where we can't support anyone at all, um, let alone ourselves. So, yeah, I think the first aid course is 
it's about looking, learning about the importance of self-care as well as the importance of then building on that and building on our own emotional intelligence, but then going even a step forward and hopefully, and I, John's a, a, a prime um, delegate to refer to here in that um, we think that after the course and loads of different courses that are out there like it, we hope that people leave as almost mental health advocates mm. um, and go back to their communities, to their organisations and and want to make a the company more socially intelligent mm. um, and to be able to foster that culture which we're talking obviously largely about mental health and well-being here, but one of the first times I spoke um, to John, he was talking about the structures they already had in the workplace um, in terms of um, looking at, you know, the importance of um, inclusivity and um, diversity and things. And the fact is... Um, all of those things, you know, different definitions, but all impact well-being. Mm. We need to be able to bring our whole self to work. We need to be able to um, be ourselves because that's where our our talent lies, our beauty lies. Um, and that's if we're in a position where we feel like we can bring our whole selves to work. And that means accepting people for their differences. Um, whatever those differences are, uh, that's where we're going to have healthy organisations and a, a healthier world, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. I, I think uh, just, just to stay on the, the topic of the, the, the mental health first state of course, I, I mean, I'm still in the middle of the course. And of course, Laura is my uh, trainer. So hopefully she's not going to fail me for what I'm about to say. But <coughs> I think for me, the, the, the benefit of the course, I think, has not necessarily been about uh, increasing my self-awareness. It's been about pushing me so far outside my comfort zone that mm -hmm. the only way I can find my comfort zone is to broaden the, the horizons of that comfort zone, to push that bubble out so that I can include talking about mental health or having that trusting conversation with somebody else who wants to have a chat. Yeah. Um, th that's the only way in which I, I have to actually redefine that zone. I, I can't find a way back. I have to actually expand my own horizons. So I think that's that's what, that's the big benefit I'm taking away from it. And certainly I, I hope to have conversations uh, back at work about the course and, you know, how it benefits people. I think that, you know, a lot of uh, organized large enterprises today have this employee helpline, you know, a number you mm. can call in if you, if you need help and so on. I, I don't have any statistics on how well they're used and how many people avail of them, but I have to think that there's a difference between calling up an anonymous voice at the at the end of a phone versus somebody that you've worked with and hopefully get along with at work and being able to have a chat with them because they can empathize with your circumstances mm. um and i think there's a real difference uh, we people can make a real difference by having that sort of training if you will around how to have these uh these uh open respectful trusting conversations so that people aren't reliant on a complete stranger at the other end mm. of the phone we, we, we care we care about mental health so much we've outsourced it <laughs> Yeah. Well, this is it. You know, I, I think you can end up, unfortunately, you can end up being something being a textbook exercise. You know, a lot of companies can just do it as a textbook exercise. And, you know, something that I've been pushing very hard for. And we've, we've, I think we've done really well in the place I work, um, weaving it into the fabric of the company. You know, so 
you know, you talk about the advocates, Laura, um, you, you do need people and, and, and people are willing to listen. Statistically speaking, they'll be willing to listen, understand and want to hear more about how how can we make people physically healthy and mentally healthy and then build in well-being? Because if you've got a high performing you know, workforce, the benefits are for everyone, the individual, the people they're working with and the output of the company. So, you know, having this at the core of everything that you do and, and having it weep into the fabric of, the, of, of what you're up to is, is, is really, really key. And it, it really yields great benefits. So that that's actually an interesting point because that that's a question that I've struggled with, uh, John, a lot. That as a manager, as a as a designated uh, leader within my company, some uh, or someone who has been given responsibilities to create certain outcomes or outputs, I am of course dependent on my team being able to deliver. And. I, I would think a very common reaction or response to somebody putting up their hands and saying, I need help, is at some level going to be, okay, how am I going to be able to deliver this quarter or this month's milestones, deliverables, output, whatever, without, about by being a, one, a person down or two people down or, or whatever it might be. So if we flip the conversation on its head slightly as an organization and as a manager how do you still work with the challenges that are presenting themselves in your team in your organization to be able to meet those responsibilities so i mean i'll, I'll just quickly answer but I'll, I'll do it based on my personal opinion having a happy workforce and having a team that are successfully delivering for you means that you're more likely to hit right you're more likely to hit those outcomes you know there's often stress there's often timelines you know unreasonable asks these things crop up all the time but making sure that you're keeping the, the team healthy um, and, and keeping an eye on them looks to mitigate those problems where possible so for me it's, a, it's the leading indicators as laura referenced trying to get it so that you've got that atmosphere such that rather than if someone gets you know written off for a month because they're off for stress you're doing it so that they've got some downtime over a long weekend because they're starting to see the indicators of it and actually then you're managing it so you still achieve it and the ramifications of someone who does get you know ever so ever so poorly and needs to take a break that you know the, once you drop that pebble in it can impact you know the work life the, the deliverables that you just mentioned but for me it goes into the family it can go into the family quite quickly and i don't want to ever have to be not responsible but i don't want everyone to feel that they have to work so hard that it can then go and influence into their into their home life so for me, it is essential as a, you know, you can talk about leaders and managers. I think for me, I try to be as flat as a structure as I can where possible and try and ensure that everyone can be as honest as they can with each other to help each other achieve in adversity. Um, and that for me is, you know, what it's about. It, it does happen every and again, you do miss something and people do need to take some time off. But you've got to learn and got to, got to learn. We've got to be open about how can we try and improve things to make sure we, we miss it again. You know, don't miss it again, sorry. And I think to echo that, to me, it's simply part of the reality that a delivery manager has to address. You know, pe people aren't an inexhaustible resource. Uh, yeah, and working for an Indian company, that, that can somehow feel like how it is when you've... I'm suddenly getting nostalgic for those 20-hour day days in, in, in a delivery centre in Bangalore week after week after week. Um, but but we do have to realise human, and I think actually we can turn to the military here. You know, one, one very early lesson the military learned is the importance of rest and recreation, but you have to build it in. But you can't sit there and um, 
law you used the term earlier, and it's gone straight out of my head now about empty vessels, but, you know, Pouring from an empty cup. Oh, yeah. I never get sayings right, and I totally nailed that, by the way. But yeah, pouring from an empty cup. I'll repeat it again. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm terrible. I, 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 actually, I will know, but we're starting a long analogy, and then it all goes horribly wrong at the end. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, I, I, I think you've got to recognise that we, we can't. Highly performing teams need some time away from the front line. We all need some recovery time, yeah, and and maybe that recovery time is different for different people. You know, there are some people where a change really is just as good as a rest. Some people generally need a rest, um, yeah, and so, some people you know, just just a change of location or something, and it may not need to be massive. But it has to be built in, and it has to be seen as normal, not abnormal. Excellent. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up in the interest of time. I think we can we can talk about this for at least another hour. Uh, I'm not sure our audience would want to sit and listen to a two-hour podcast just yet. Um, but um, bef before I wrap up, um, are there any specific uh, resources uh, that anybody on 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 this panel here would like to highlight? Uh, places where uh, individuals or even organisations can find out more about uh, the, the topic of mental health, mental well-being, maybe find some resources that can help them uh, spread the word or resources that can help them um, uh, address uh, a situation that they're going through right now. But any links? I mean, we, we've talked about mental health first aider. So again, Laura, I don't want to steal your thunder, but you know, I can highlight mental health first aid, uh, mfha.org, I think. Uh, as a website, um, it's got a lot of resources geared towards um, individuals and well, it's got more, I think, personally, I think it has more resources geared for an organization than it does for an individual, but that's my, that's my opinion. Um, any, anyone have any other, uh, um, uh, any websites or other resources you'd like to highlight for, for our listeners? Not, not external websites as such, just, just a comment again from painful experience. Um, if you work for an organization which gives you access to healthcare, remember that it's also there for mental health care, not just physical health care. Those of you in the UK who've tried to access mental health services via the NHS, will, will, I, I think around here the waiting list is something like three years of fairly basic health support on, on mental issues. Um, so, you know, don't be afraid of, of we're, we're back to, you know, this is a health issue. Don't be afraid of using health insurance to deal with this issue. Um, I, I think the, the other thing is it can be useful sometimes to look for, if, if you know you've got um, a specific issue, to look for support groups specific to that as opposed to general purpose groups. Something we've not touched on this podcast, and I would love us to do another podcast on the topic. Um, is managing neurodiverse teams and particular mental health challenges, for instance, that neurodiverse people face. Yeah, interesting. We might do a follow up on that. Sorry, John, go ahead. Yeah, and no, I was going to say, for, for me, I think if, if anyone did want to find out more, I think the first question to ask is internally within your company, you know, what have we got? Who can we speak to? HR? And there's normally normally employee assistant programs and so forth that are buried somewhere in some file that no one's looked at and so forth for a long time. So 
would strongly advise that they speak, you know, speak to HR internally, or you know, if you if you're comfortable, speak to your manager to find out a little bit more. Um, and then I will pause now and probably hand over to Laura, who has got I know hundreds of different ways in which you can find out some really good information. Uh, yes, probably. Um, however, we are wrapping up, I'm aware. No, I just want to, I'm glad you mentioned EAP because I know we kind of slagged it off a little bit earlier, but the thing is, is that uh, a, even a mental health first aider, and might, um, they might very well recommend that someone call yeah. up the employee assistance program. And those statistics that, you know, statistics that you might want to be um, talking about, Akshay, that EAPs are notoriously underutilised um, because of even the stigma of even connecting with an anonymous helpline. So talking about that more, um, not as the be-all end-all, but just in case you are on that hectic wait list, um, they, it's definitely something to consider. Um, but also um, charities like Mind Charity have so many um, self-help tools and things like that. Um, I, just because we're about to finish, I would love to share something that I have found so helpful as a mental health first aider, I'd say, and that's having a few key helplines on my phone. I've got Samaritans, I've got Calm, Campaign Against Living Miserably, which is focused on predominantly men's mental health um, and and mind charity. I've got a, a collection of them that I have on my phone so that if I'm talking to someone, it is just so normal for me to say, hey, do you mind if I, I ping you this contact? Um, and I've, I've had positive um, feedback on that previously from people I've supported, but it's also come in handy for myself. Um, I've popped it in there at times when I didn't think that I would need a helpline again, um, but it's always there um, for me if I need it. Um, but if you do look, there are so many different community-based, charity-based and, and supports in organisations that you can get a lot of information um, about supporting yourself and others. And I think one of the big things is when we grow up, we learn quite a bit about how to look after our physical health. But I know in my my school, I don't even think mental health or mental illness was even mentioned. So we're still at a stage now where we're even doing the basics to figure out really great things and how we, to look after ourselves can be really powerful. Um, so take a look, there is so much out there. That's, that's, uh, that's wonderful. Um, uh, James, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, some other interesting topics, uh, and I'm aware we, we've only just scratched the surface of a very large and complex topic. Uh, you know, uh, neurodiversity is one thing. I think uh, I'm very interested in uh, uh, gender-based uh, gender uh, discussion on, on how mental health and mental well-being can manifest differently between men and women. You know, certainly I think John alluded to this um, sort of toxic male uh, idea of masculinity and never failing. And, you know, th there are very different um, uh, things that, uh, you know, whether it's gender, whether it's based on neurodiversity, there, there are so many different topics we can cover here. Uh, so I do have a request to our, our listeners, uh, which probably includes my mom and my mother-in-law as well. Uh, but if you do have, if, if you do want to have more podcast uh, episodes uh, that are focused on mental health, on mental well-being, and exploring some of these subtopics as well, uh, please do email us at ask at axelos.com or get in touch with with me on on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as uh, at the lawboy. Uh, and even if you email ask at axelos.com, the, the the feedback will wind its way towards me. Uh, so rest assured, I read 
all of your comments and, and, and feedback. Uh, but for the rest of you, uh, Laura, if people want to find out more about you and uh, the work that you do, where can they find you? Um, I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. Yes, I could have talked all day on this topic. Um, but also it's a playground. If you go to www.itsaplayground.org, then you'll find more, out more about me and, and the company and kind of hopefully you've found out a little bit about what we believe in and what we stand for, but there's a lot more info there. Um, or contact at info at itsaplayground.org um, and that will most certainly come back to me. So if you've got any feedback or questions, um, I'm always more than happy to, to um, refer people to an abundance of resources and things like that. So please feel free to get in touch with me as well. Excellent. And uh, John, if uh, people want to find out more about you or, or get in touch with you to talk about some of the work you've been doing, uh, like the network of, of mental health first aiders, for example, where can people find you? Yeah, that's no problem. So LinkedIn, obviously, just search for John Kendrick on LinkedIn, um, DMW, uh, DMW group. The other thing I'm on Twitter, so it's at Mr. John Kendrick, uh, should you care to use Twitter? Um, you know, and there's, there's all sorts of things we can cover around uh, diversity, inclusion and well-being that we've been leading the charge on in our company. And so, yeah, more than happy to chat to people about that and see if we can share learnings. Excellent. And last but not least, James, uh, if people um, want to find out more about you. LinkedIn is probably the best starting point. I am on Twitter as... Uh, Jim Boffin, I think it is. It? Jim Boffin. Unfortunately, some people keep thinking it's Jim Boffin, which, which, which somehow I, I feel is overrepresenting myself. <laughs> um, obviously, if you want to find out about TCS, www.tcs.com is your starting point for that. Uh, and also, just a quick call out for the Back to ITSM group on Facebook, uh, which is where a lot of conversations about mental health and service management have been taking place recently. Excellent. Um, and uh, Harry, if, uh, you've, you've also had some interesting comments and you are part of this panel and people want to reach out to you to find out your experience yeah, and, like and to, talk to you about some things. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you're more than welcome to email ask at axos.com or get in touch with Akshay on Twitter. <laughs> fair enough all right um in that case let's let's wrap it up here uh laura john james thank you so much for agreeing to take part and i hope that you can come on uh on future episodes um and, and talk about uh more of this uh, same topic uh and for our listeners look stay safe uh stay healthy if you are in need of assistance We've hopefully provided you with some insights about how to get help, where to get help from either online or within your company. And uh, all that's left for me to say is, you know, stay safe and wash your hands. Presented by Axelos.